Well, good morning, everyone. Happy to be here. Pastor Mark asked me to say something about apologetics, so I'm going to say quite a bit. And uh, he did give me a two-hour limit, so don't worry about that. There's been a change in the order of service. You may not have heard about that. Uh, I want to tell you that I have quite a few quotations this morning from my favorite philosopher, Blaise Pascal. There will also be reading of a number of scriptures. And because there are so many quotations, and because this breaks all the rules of how you're supposed to preach, I'm going to uh, have in the back an outline of all these quotes for you. The title I have... It's not really two hours. The title I have is Hating, Fearing, and Desiring the Truth, An Argument for Christianity. We should have a reason for the hope that is within us. And we should ask, is there really hope for the universe? Certainly there are intrepid hopers in the universe. We hope for a good life after death. We hope for godly relationships. But will our deepest hopes be fulfilled or will they be thwarted? Scripture says there is a reason for our hope, and one of the classic texts on apologetics is 1 Peter three fifteen through 16 Peter says to a suffering church, bearing witness to Christ and his cross, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. And my case is that we can have a rational hope that the Christian faith is reasonable and that it answers the deepest yearnings of the human heart and it also exposes our shabbiness and our lame excuses before a holy God. In fact, to have hope, we need to face up to our hostility at times to God, even our antipathy to God and his gospel. So there's some bad news really about who we are before we can receive the good news. There's the law, that we have disobeyed our lawgiver, but then there's grace, that our Savior has stood in our place to bear the penalty for our sins, to set us free. I like to talk a little bit about my story as a follower of Christ, as a philosopher, and as a defender of the faith. And I do this because as I've gotten older... I've realized that for many years I haven't said a whole lot about my testimony. It's been more why I believe Christianity is true, reasonable, and meaningful. I write to that end, teach, preach. I love, I thrive to be in non-Christian settings to explain and defend the gospel. And if anybody knows of a place where I can do that, let me know. I'll do it. Your friends, your family, secular groups. You have a good street corner I can go to. Please, just tell me. I'm serious. I mean, I'm an old guy. I've got to make the most of the time I have. However, I was not raised a Christian. I was raised in what I would call a God-fearing family. Very solid, good parents. I was uh, baptized as an infant. My parents in that church were faithful to dedicate me to the Lord. Although we didn't go to church very much, we did pray. My mother taught me how to pray. But as I became a teenager, this was in the 1970s, I started to get interested in Eastern religions and in uh, really the occult and esoteric ideas. This was largely through my interest in certain rock musicians at the time like Carlos Santana and uh, Jimi Hendrix and so on. And that continued as I went to the university. I went to the University of Northern Colorado for one year and I began to study secular philosophy and continued to study 
Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, read about things like out-of-the-body travels. But something happened. Uh, it's called the grace of God. And I, in my reading, began to read a Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, who really exposed my condition as a rebel before God. And I also met two Christians in Boulder. I would try to escape Greeley as often as possible and go to Boulder where every good young pagan wants to spend the weekend. And God had something else in store for me, and that is hearing the gospel from two young women in the Navigators Campus Ministry. And that began to haunt me. The Lord also sent me some dreams that showed me my condition before him, that I was on the wrong side of the truth. When I went back home to Anchorage, Alaska that summer of 1976, many of my friends, about half of them, had become followers of Jesus. And they were telling me of their newfound faith and the reality of Christ. Again, God spoke to me in a dream, revealing that I was being deceived by a lot of the philosophies I was following. There were a number of conjunctions of events that occurred that showed me that I was at a fork in the road. And the right side was Jesus, and the other side was being lost. I had a very profound, intense feeling of being lost. And Jesus said about himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I testify that that is what has happened to me. In 1977, I discovered this ingenious French philosopher and scientist, Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 17th century. And what I'd like to do this morning is go over one of his statements about how he thought we should defend Christianity as objectively true, compellingly rational, and deeply meaningful to the whole of life. And I'm going to really go through this and back it up with some quotes by Pascal, who was a phenomenally good apologist, and then also with Scripture. And I am convinced that everything Pascal is saying is very biblical. So when he's structuring his own defense of Christianity, he says, this is what the order should be. Men despise religion. And he means the Christian religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. The cure for this is to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true, then show that it is. Worthy of reverence because it really understands human nature. Attractive because it promises true good. And that's from a collection of his thoughts, which is known as pensées, or simply thoughts. Now, the first truth we have to face in making a case for Christianity is that if we look deep inside of ourselves, we find a kind of hostility, I think, towards the Almighty. Pascal says, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. I think of C.S. Lewis, who said that man's quest for God is something, something like the mouse's quest for the cat. We may be open to answers. We need something more than we now have, we might admit. But the idea of an all-powerful, all-good God who knows everything about us can be rather daunting. But to come to God in the right way, we need to realize this about ourselves. And what I'm saying this morning is really an apologetic according to the human condition, what our basic problem is and what the solution is through Christ and his gospel. What animates this hostility or antipathy to God? 
The Apostle Paul says it's really a lack of thanksgiving and a lack of proper worship in light of what we can know about God. So in Romans 1, 18-21, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. How so? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So God has made himself known. He has revealed himself to us in the creation. And at some level, we know that or we are haunted by that thought. But in our own pride, in our own fear of God, we may not want to think a lot about that. We may distract ourselves from that reality and try to live as if there were no God or to live as if God is really not that significant in our lives. Now think about that. How could the creator of the world not be significant for his creations? So this text very directly tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, the wrath of God is simply God's response to our own rebellion against him. It's based actually on his love for creation. Because when his creatures go wrong and put love of themselves or love of anything above love of God, God looks at that and knows that that's not right. That's not good. That's not helpful for human beings. And that doesn't honor the creator and designer and sustainer of the universe. God's wrath is against all that pollutes and corrupts people when they fail to worship and honor and thank God. So this text tells us that we tend to suppress the truth. Now notice, this is very different than not knowing the truth. I could ask you a number of questions, and you can ask me a number of questions, the answer to which I do not know. But it's different to know something and then want to pretend like you don't know it, or to suppress it. Let me give you an example. It's not in my notes. I I hope it's from the Lord. I used to weigh a whole lot more than I do now. In fact, I gained about 50 pounds through the stress of my first wife's dementia and death. And when you are really overweight, you really don't want to admit it. (laughs) I know it, but I didn't like to look in the mirror, and I didn't get on a scale for a long time. And when I finally got on the scale, I was in trouble. And then the Lord prompted me to start losing weight. But you see what I was doing? I was suppressing the truth. And it can be much more serious when you suppress the truth that you know in your conscience that you are a creature, that you are made, that you should recognize God, honor Him as God, thank Him for every good gift you have, and in fact worship Him. But there's something in us. There is a self-deception. We would often rather have things or situations than God's blessing on our life. So we may seek money, sex, or power, make those into idols, and expect them to bless us. There is this danger of self-deception, 
And again, Soren Kierkegaard said, of all deceivers, fear most yourself. Now let me give you some examples of people who confess their hostility to God. This is remarkable. I have three to show you. One is a philosopher, a very good one really in many ways, contemporary, named Thomas Nagel. In a book called The Last Word, he says this, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God! Exclamation mark. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Another statement is from a well-known German atheist philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived from 1844 to 1900. This is a speech by a character called The Ugliest Man from his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and he's speaking really for Nietzsche's own philosophy. But he, that is God, had to die. He saw with eyes that saw everything. He saw man's depths and ultimate grounds all his concealed disgrace and ugliness. His pity knew no shame. He crawled into my dirtiest nooks. This most curious, over-obtrusive one had to die. He always saw me. On such a witness, I wanted to have my revenge or not live myself. The God who saw everything, even man, this God had to die. Man cannot bear it that such a witness should live. In fact, you can't bear it unless you understand the love of God in Christ as your Savior. But Nietzsche sadly never came to that. The third testimony is my own. Before I became a Christian in 1975-1976, I began to read some of the great atheists such as Nietzsche and Freud, Marx, and others. And I decided that the brave, strong, independent thing to do was to renounce religion and God. And I really set myself against the idea of God. But it was always conflicted because I would simply look at the sky and look at the mountains and realize, darn it, I just can't do this, but I have to do it. I'm affirming my selfhood. And I was trying to synthesize these ideas from philosophy and so on. And then when I read Kierkegaard, this little book but very thick and profound, called The Sickness Unto Death. Kierkegaard showed me that I was rebelling against God. And I remember waking up after a very strange dream in the middle of the night in Troxel Hall at the University of Northern Colorado and opening that book, The Sickness Unto Death, randomly and reading. And the book was reading me about my rebellion against God. What is the answer to this problem? That is, we have this, on the one hand, antipathy towards God because God exposes us for who we are. On the other hand, we have profound abiding desires for fulfillment, for loving relationships, to be able to feel at home somehow in a broken world. What is the answer or cure? Well, let me read Pascal again. The cure for this hatred of God and fearing it may be true 
is to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect, worthy of reverence because it really understands human nature. Now, Pascal shines in this area in explaining the human condition according to Scripture. Pascal asks in Ponces, one of my favorite passages, what sort of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious, judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, the glory and refuse of the universe. My first wife, Rebecca, just loved that quote. She would always laugh at these juxtapositions. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm. Repository of truth, sink of doubt and error. So Pascal is reflecting on what he called human greatness and human, human misery. So think of the greatness of humanity. Just think of this place, this cultural center where you can hear music and see art. And there's a wonderful piece of art out here called, interestingly, Rebirth. And it's in the shape of a cross. And I asked Mark if this was planned. And he said, no, they just had it here. Well, the Lord planned it. Think of the development of culture, great literature, Shakespeare, great art, Van Gogh, architecture, the cathedrals of Europe, achievements in science by Newton, Einstein, developments in technology, in communication and travel. Certainly human beings are unique under the sun. We have greatness. And we have a sense of what Francis Schaeffer called moral motions. We have a conscience. We are irked by things. Not just that they bother us, but that they are wrong, like human trafficking. It's wrong. It shouldn't be. So we cry out against the world in many ways. And sometimes we even cry out against ourselves when we realize we have been petty or selfish or have ignored the greatest things. So human beings are great how? By virtue of being created in the very image and likeness of God. We see that in the Genesis account, Genesis 1. We also see in Genesis 9, James 3, and other passages in the Bible. But there's something wrong with human beings. At least me, I'll speak for myself. So Pascal says, and he's using God's voice to describe our essential human problem. I created man holy, innocent, perfect. I filled him with light and understanding. I showed him my glory and my wondrous works. Thinking of man and woman in the garden. Man's eye then beheld the majesty of God. He was not then in the darkness that now binds or now blinds his sight, nor subject to death and the miseries that afflict him. He wanted to make himself his own center and do without my help. He withdrew himself from my rule setting himself up as my equal in his desire to find happiness in himself. And I abandoned him to himself. So to fill this out biblically, read Romans chapter 1. Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What is the cause of this estrangement, this alienation from God? What is the source of our miseries and our hostility to God? Again, Pascal from Ponce's. It is in vain, O man, that you seek within yourselves the cure for all your miseries. All your insight has led to the knowledge that it is not in yourselves that you discover the true and the good. Your principal maladies are pride, which cuts you off from God, and sensuality, 
which binds you to the earth, and they have done nothing but foster at least one of these maladies. He means merely human philosophy, false and fallen philosophies. Just one text from Scripture. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. On Pascal's account, which I have so briefly summarized, we are, as he puts it, deposed royalty. We had the status of kings and queens in creation. We represent God. We have tremendous relational and rational abilities. But we are fallen beings. We have neglected the highest things. We have violated our own conscience. So Pascal says, Ours is the wretchedness of a great Lord, the wretchedness of a dispossessed king. Now what is the answer or the cure? What is the answer or the cure? We found that the Christian understanding explains who we are, so it's worthy of respect. False philosophies either emphasize goodness at the expense of badness or badness at the expense of goodness with the concern for the human condition. The second part is that Christianity, or let's say God himself through Christ, offers us the true good of human flourishing and human satisfaction at the best and deepest level. And this is offered to us through reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read a statement from Pascal where he summarizes the achievements of Christ. Each one of these achievements could easily be a chapter in a book. But I'm going to summarize it and then quote a scripture to make this case. Pascal says, Christ alone had to produce a great people, elect, holy, and chosen. Lead them, feed them, bring them into the place of rest and holiness. Make them holy for God. Make them the temple of God. Reconcile them to God. Save them from God's anger. Redeem them from the bondage of sin, which visibly reigns in man. Give laws to his people. Write those laws in their hearts. Offer himself to God for them. Sacrifice himself for them. Be a spotless sacrifice and himself the sacrificer. Having himself to offer up his body and blood and yet offer up bread and wine to God. I think one of the most majestic and beautiful statements about our Lord that I have read. But what about the words of Holy Scripture, inspired Scripture from the Apostle Paul? This was alluded to earlier during our worship time. This is from Romans 5, 6-8. through 8. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the answer to the human condition, what is offered to all of us dispossessed kings and queens, is to recognize that we have fallen short of the glory of God, to recognize that we have this strong tendency to suppress the truth of God because we don't want to be exposed for who we are, but then realize that if we, if we accept God's assessment of who we are, needing redemption, forgiveness, needing new life, new birth, then the true good is available to be restored to our Heavenly Father, to be forgiven, to be led by the Holy Spirit, 
to be guided by the Holy Scriptures. Or, the alternative is to fail to be reconciled to God, to be lost forever and alienated from our true good. But we can, by the grace of God, participate in God's life and His kingdom forever. That is, we can be set right with God and then we can have a new life. We can be reborn, as Jesus said in John chapter 3. Not simply to go to heaven when we die. Yes, but to experience a new quality and depth of meaning and feeling of life every second of life until we die. And then eventually to join all the redeemed in a resurrected world, the new heavens and the new earth, which is described in Revelation 21 and 22. And I comforted my first wife, Rebecca, who passed away last year, with the words of Revelation 21 and 22 so often that there is a place awaiting both of us where there are no tears and no pain and no suffering where we will have abundant and full life forever in a new creation with all God's creatures. Or we can fail to participate in this life of God, this life of love and of a vibrant faith and simply try to continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and exchange the glory of God for idols and expect those idols to somehow bless us when they cannot. They can only deceive us. Pascal spoke of turning away from Christ as the loss of an infinity of an infinitely happy life with God. Or the words of Jesus, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. Pascal says, Make good men wish it were true, then show that it is. Now, by good men, he seems, what he means to say there is our deepest and truest yearnings for redemption. We have to realize that we're fallen, that we suppress the truth, that we need a Redeemer. But because we're made in God's image, we hunger for fulfillment, even if we look in the wrong places so often. And apart from God's grace, we will look in the wrong places. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Where Pascal says, Between us and heaven or hell, there is only this life, which is the most fragile thing in the world. Back to Pascal as I finish up. Pascal says, in terms of his argument for Christianity, which I'm summarizing, Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show that it is. Attractive because it promises true good. Pascal said we should seek the true good and be honest with ourselves in so seeking so that we don't deceive ourselves. So he says this, I should therefore like to arouse in man the desire to find truth, to be ready, free from passion, to follow it wherever he may find it, realizing how far his knowledge is clouded by passions. I should like him to hate his own lust, which automatically makes his decisions for him, so that it should not blind him when he makes his choice for God, nor hinder him once he has chosen to follow God. We have something in us that tells us 
we're incomplete, that something vital is missing. And Pascal is perhaps most well-known for the following quote, which is often summarized as the God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Or think of the words of our Lord Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So let me review by reading this quote from Pascal and summarizing. Men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. That's our sinfulness, our selfishness, our self-centeredness. But there's a cure. The cure for this is to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true, then show that it is. Worthy of reverence because it really understands human nature. Attractive because it promises true good. Christianity is worthy of respect for so many reasons. I wrote this huge book called Christian Apologetics, 752 pages, but who's counting? And in fact, if you'd like to purchase one, I have it in the back, along with another book. This is only one way to explain the meaning and the power and the rationality of Christianity. It's understanding of who we are, who humanity is. Fallen, longing for a fulfillment it cannot bring by its own power being offered an assessment of the human condition through Scripture as fallen, but deposed royalty. We've fallen from a great place. But we are redeemable through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pascal says, Make good men wish it were true. I'll tell you, it is true. I became a Christian about 43 years ago. And I did not have a powerful conversion experience, but I did believe it was true and that my life needed to change. And slowly it did. And right around the time I became a Christian, I had a friend named John Karpoff who told me, Doug, if you become a Christian, you'll lose your intellectual integrity. You'll read Christian books, you'll hang out with Christians, and you won't be a thinker anymore. Well, John Karpoff, and I have contacted him, you were wrong. Because I've spent the last 43 plus years reading and studying the other religions of the world, all the major philosophies. I've written 12 books. I've published 31 academic articles. I've written hundreds of other articles. I've been in debates, panel discussions, written letters to the editor, witnessed to countless non-Christians. And I am convinced that the Christian message, that Christ died for our sins, and that He is the only Lord and Savior, is true, is rational, and is the most important truth you could ever imagine. Several years ago, my first wife, Becky, and I 
were going to Olive Garden for dinner. We enjoyed doing that, and she could still manage that at the time. And I again tried to encourage her that even though she was dying of a rare form of dementia, primary progressive aphasia, that that was not the end. That one day we would laugh and dance and sing together in the new heavens and the new earth. And she looked at me with these very soulful eyes and said, now remember, she had been a Christ follower as long as she could remember. She said, but Doug, is it really true? And I said, Becky, do you remember that big apologetics book that I wrote? Do you think I'm smart? Yes. You edited every word of that book, and you agree with me that Christianity is true. So I assure you that indeed what I said will come to pass. And I assure all of you, I challenge you, if you have not named the name of Christ, confessed Him as Lord, and followed Him in baptism, to do so. You believe that He died for your sin, that you need to be redeemed, forgiven. You're not right with God the way things are. You're damaged goods, you're deposed royalty. You believe in what He has done, and you receive who He is. And believing, receiving, you become a different kind of person by His grace. You become a person who can live well through suffering, as God has taught me, despite all my weaknesses and problems. And you have a rational hope for a better life here, through the suffering, and ultimately the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. And if you know this to be true, I challenge and encourage you to make it known to others. If you don't have a lot of skills in defending your faith, then read, study, listen to some good podcasts, and then put it into practice. Because there is a reason for the hope that we have. And we can offer this with gentleness and respect. And in fact, we will remember and celebrate the goodness of God to restore us and redeem us as we celebrate communion. And Pastor Mark will lead us in that.